Never walk alone. When Paul turns the page from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, verse 1, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, this is what I'm asking you to do, Christians, and the first thing that you do, based on who you are, is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called to. As Christians, we are called to a different kind of life than our non-believing neighbors, than this present world. We believe that this world and its passions are passing away, but the kingdom of God endures forever. We believe that the messages of our world and the promises of our politicians and the documents of our Constitution and all of the amendments are passing away, but the word of the Lord will never pass away. We are not people of the Constitution. We are people of the risen Christ. And we've got a calling in a dark world to be his light. And that's what Paul is going to talk about. And I think about all the blessings. Let me run them down one more time, just in case this is your first time where you forget what I shared during Blessed Strangers. Ephesians 1.3, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you believe it, say amen. amen. Ephesians 1.4, we are chosen before the foundation of the world. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Ephesians 1.7, we are redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1.8, we have hope, riches, and power. Ephesians 2.5, we are made alive with Christ. Ephesians 2.8, by grace we have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we are God's creation. We are God's poem, the word is, the poem of God to do what God has already predestined us to do in this world for his glory, if you believe that at all occasions, say amen. amen. Then Ephesians 2.19, we are members of the household of God. Ephesians 2.22, we are the dwelling place for God. Ephesians 3.12, we have boldness and access to God. And then Ephesians 3.20, that in us or through us, God is able to do abundantly beyond what we can ask or even think according to the power that is at work within us. Those are the promises. Those are powerful promises. And Paul builds the case. Paul, who writes the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus in the first century, he builds the case. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Don't you remember who you are? Some of us are like Simba, hanging out with Pumbaa and Timon, eating bugs and smelling farts. And we are the son of the king. We are, we are the lions of God. And instead of smelling farts and eating bugs, we should be conquering and commanding and ruling and reigning with Christ. Do you remember who you are, right? Oh, we, we, we need that funny little monkey to say, you don't know who you are, do you? And he mixes the little sand and he spits in it and he's like, whoosh, this is who you are. Anyway. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with who we are? That's the question, right? And I bet there are people here, oh man, you're like, oh, finally, let's get to that whole topic about marriage because my marriage needs help, pastor. Or you're thinking, man, my kids, I don't know what's going on. My kids need help. 
Oh, and I'm in a spiritual war, Lord, uh, pastor, and I pray that. Let's go to Ephesians 6 and let's talk about that. Okay, we can get there. But before we get to all those places, Ephesians 4 opens up with this. Ephesians 4, 3, look at it. Eager to maintain the what? Unity, Unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, before we talk about your marriage, before we talk about your parenting, before we talk about your spiritual warfare, before we talk about how to be a good boss or how to be a good employee, let's work on our unity. Let's stay together. Let's be strong as one. And if there is one thing that the enemy loves more than anything is for you to give up on your local church. Oh, how many trophies the devil has on his shelves, wherever he sleeps. Shelves of trophies of, of former Christians, former people who followed, former people, maybe even they got baptized. They used to be in the church. They even used to pastor, maybe they even used to preach or be on the stage, or they used to just serve the Lord. And, and, and something got in them. That created a bitterness of spirit toward their church. And I believe that the devil just loves to work with the spirit of bitterness. Somebody said something to me, and I'm not going back to that church anymore. Somebody looked at me the wrong way. Somebody didn't let me do what I wanted to do. Somebody asked me to step aside to make room for somebody else. And that was my ministry, and that was my position. Oh, how many people throughout my life I've seen get so ticked off at the smallest little thing. And I think to myself, these people will never survive the tribulation. Christians, when I talk about the tribulation, when's the tribulation? Is the tribulation here? Is the vaccine the mark of the beast, pastor? Let me just tell you something. Based on our response to just this little vaccine shot, we got no shot in the real tribulation. Let me just tell you that. We're demonizing each other, hating on each other, stabbing at each other, commenting on each other, making fun of each other. We gotta knock that off and we've gotta be the church that stays together no matter what happens on the outside in the church. How many, how many people I've seen give up on the faith Small things upset them. I have a friend who passes a church in the nearby community, and his church went through this horrible, horrible divide. And, and they were they got the pastor out, and they started to get other pastors to come in and, and campaign to be the pastor. And the, and the guy that they brought in said, I ain't coming into this. You guys are a mess. And, and, and I was asking this guy, I said, what happened? I kid you not. He said, we're a church that's built around a big family, and at one of our potluck dinners, a woman said something offensive to another woman, and that was the beginning of everything. One little statement, one little statement, and the church is divided, and, the, and, and they've been going, they're still going through, it's been going through on for about four years. Over, when, the, when the Antichrist actually shows up, there's going to be a whole lot of churches saying, we're done, we're closed, sorry, no gathering. 
There's no strength in the church. Here's where we get strong. We get strong when we don't let little offenses and little spirits get in our spirit and we get all divisive and we get all caustic and we look worse than the world because the world is supposed to divide, but the church is supposed to unite through the Holy Spirit of God. Right before COVID, I was preaching and I was looking up my messages and the Lord actually brought me back to this, this story that I told right before COVID. It was a good preacher story. Oh, it was one of my best ever. But it was, and it was super funny. And you all loved it. And some of you were not here yet, but everybody loved it. And uh, I don't know why the Lord brought me to, back to that story, but I, but I, I want to remind you of it. It was a story that was so good. I think you guys missed the point of the story. I was talking about walking back from the gym around the corner up into the parking lot of our church. And I looked in the parking lot and I saw this ghost-like figure doing this in the parking lot. And at first I started to approach, but he started to come toward me and I ran from my life. And then I got into my car and I was driving through the parking lot because he disappeared. And I was honking and saying with my car now, all bold with my car, in the name of Jesus, get out of here, right? And then I was like thinking the fact that I had left my wallet in the church and I had left the door open, but I was too afraid to get out of my car to lock it up and get my wallet. And so I called Shane, our executive pastor. I said, Shane, there's a ghost on the property. Uh, you got to do something. Uh, I, I left my wallet in the church. Can you just come over here and lock the door? This is your job. I preach. You run the show. Oh, and I just, just come and lock the door. And, and, I, and I'll never forget, as God is my witness, he said, absolutely, I'll send my wife Marianne right over. <laughs> Yeah, it's still a good story, right? It's still a good one. I love that story. But I said this at the end of that story. I said, listen, when there's no light, even familiar places become fearful places. And isn't it amazing that I shared that story right before COVID? When there's no light, even familiar places become scary places. COVID hits and we're all gone. Separate, distance, do your part, stay apart, six feet. And still to this day, some people aren't yet back. I, I was thinking about it. You know what would have made all the difference that night for me? coming back from that gym in the dark of December with that, whatever that thing was in the parking lot, you know what I would have made all the difference in the world? If I had somebody walking with me. Here's what I want you to write down. If you want to be strong, never walk alone. Oh, if I had a friend that night and we saw that ghost-like figure, I, none of us, we wouldn't have run probably because I would have been with another dude and neither dude wants to look scared in front of the other dude. <laughs> we would have been like, I dare you to go and see what it is. <laughs> or we would have said, on the count of three, we're going to charge this sucker. <laughs> see, that's the key to your strength, friend. You need someone to walk with. Why Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, I'm going to put it in the NIV for you now. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Work at it. Don't let the devil divide you from your brother or sister in Christ. Oh, it's going to take effort. It's going to take exertion. It's going to take exhaustion. It's going to take exercise. But it's worth it. Because when the next big thing happens in the world and everybody's freaking out, the church has an opportunity to say, I know that I've got a family. It might not be my biological family. It might not be my, my, my race. It might not be my tribe. I've got a family that supersedes biology and supersedes ethnicity and supersedes geolocation. I got a family that's na- whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and we are bonded through the Holy Spirit. The bond. The bond of, what's the last word? Peace. I don't get peace, pastor. Well, that's because you're alone. Or you allow yourself too much time alone. And I find it highly amazing that the first thing that Paul says we do based on what God has made us to be is to fight to stay together. Implication, the devil is fighting to bring us apart. And uh, I, I was thinking about how it says keep the unity. If you got your notes out, circle keep. We don't create unity. Mankind cannot create unity. Mankind creates conformity. I'll say that again. Mankind creates conformity. Just ask the great theologian, Nicki Minaj. <laughs> oh, she had a little bit of a wake-up call this week, didn't she? She dared to question the warlords over our cultural conversation around the vaccines. And this is not for or against vaccines. This is this talking about the problem that we've got going on. We've got a problem in this country where there's a group of people that want to control everybody. They want to control you and don't ask questions. I saw a post, Washington Post article said, Nicki Minaj, we are coming for you. <laughs> okay. And you want to call the other people Nazis. Okay. But you see, that's what mankind does. Creates conformity. Tribalism comes from mankind. Nationalism comes from mankind. Political ideologies that supersede our theological identities come from mankind. Man creates conformity. God, the Holy Spirit, creates unity. It is not forced upon you from the outside in like mankind does. It's, it's birthed in you through the Holy Spirit that, that seals you and solidifies you with your brother and sister in Christ. So the first priority, write this down. The first priority of our calling in Christ is unity. And I want to teach you today on how to fight for the family. Point number one. Fight for the family means surrender your rights for the sake of God-given community. Surrender your rights, and this is what Paul's going to say, 
for the sake of God given community. I want you to look at uh, verse two again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Just underline, bearing with one another in love. Sometimes that's all you can do with some Christians. Just bear with them. Because you don't know what happened to them this past week. You don't know how the, how the devil is messing with them, how the world's messing with them, how their life is messing with them. And maybe they're ornery because they had a week from hell. So bear with them in love. And if you want community, and if you want unity, and if you want to walk with somebody in life, two choices. Well, actually, there's, there's a choice to get there. You have two choices in life. It's really simple. Choice number one, you can be all about yourself. You can be all about what you feel is your right as a citizen of this world. You can put yourself first. You can go for your things and your dreams and your passions, and, and you can end up alone. That's choice number one. Choice number two is you can have friends, real friends, close friends. But in order to have friends, you got to stop thinking about yourself. See, that's, that's, that's the um, sacrifice necessary to get you some friends. If you want friends, stop thinking about yourself. It's really that simple. You're, now, you're more than welcome to think all about yourself. But you will probably have no friends. And I'm telling you that this is the roadmap to family in God. And if we're going to be a united church, three tools are given to us from this text. The first tool, write it down, is humility. Write the definition down too. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In a culture that demands we think about ourselves and fights for ourselves and promotes ourselves and puts ourselves out there and goes for what we think and we feel. Humility is the opposite of all that. Humility is, is, is posting something else about someone else on your Facebook. Humility is calling someone else up and seeing how they're doing. Humility is going to God on your knees, not because you're in a mess, but because you love your brother or sister in Christ and you want to bring their name, not your name, to the throne of grace. Humility is putting others ahead of you in society. Humility is serving on the weekend at one of our locations. Humility is getting up early on Sunday morning not to just go to church, but to be the church. And getting here earlier than everybody else and having a smile on your face and being ready to greet people in the lobby or in the parking lot or to check kids in or to serve in the kids ministry or to do a whole host of other things that requires you to put yourself on the back burner and put other people on the front burner. Humility is not Charlie Brownism. Woe is me, nobody likes me, I'm gonna eat some worms. That's not humility. Humility is putting someone before you. Uh, so we had a 
congregant come down with COVID this past week, and he was in pretty rough shape, and he is one of those people that gets up early and serves you every week. His name is Rick, and he went to the ICU, and he was in rough, rough shape. And you can't get in anymore because, you know, all the rules and all the restrictions. But he's part of a small group. He's part of a small group. And this week, that small group showed up to the hospital. They couldn't get in. They knew they couldn't get in. They knew beforehand they couldn't get in. So what did they do? They just gathered in the parking lot and lifted Rick's name up to the throne of grace. And I got a picture of it for you here. This picture of that group gathering in prayer. COVID has got nothing on a church filled with people who are willing to pray for each other and lift one another up and show up at the parking lot. He might not even know you're there, but they know they're there and God knows they're there. And so who's COVID against the prayers of God's people? <laughs> Unity. But Rick got that, you know, our Rick's story is his parents aren't in this area. He has no family here. His family is you. And his family showed up because he put others first. You don't know Rick. I know Rick. One of the happiest guys around here because he serves others. You have a choice. Younger people, you have a choice with your life. You can be lonely or you can have friends. But in order to have friends, you have to stop thinking about yourself. I'm so tired of the victimhood of this younger generation. You are not oppressed. I know this is trigger speech. I know you're feeling microaggressed right now. I know you can just label me all the, you know, bigot, racist, homophobic, whatever. Uh, yeah, sure, xenophobic. Okay, fine. Sticks and stones, my friends. My generation was taught sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Your generation was taught sticks and stones may, may break my bones, but names will literally kill me. Okay, anyway. <laughs> You're not oppressed. You're not a victim. Anxiety is not some unstoppable force like the Terminator hunting you down relentlessly. You can do something about anxiety. You can do something. You can do something. You can, you can have friends. You can have pals. And you can have Christian people in your life who will pray for you and relate with you and open up with you and say, yeah, that's, I got that problem too. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to do? We're going to pray for each other. We're gonna lift. A, we're gonna think of each other. We're gonna call on each other. We're gonna call. Just check it in. How you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know what else you can do? You can go for a walk. Like stop being a victim. Is what I'm saying. Stop being a victim to all your feelings. Did you know that it has been scientifically proven that actions actually change feelings? Did you know that if you smile, if you smile, the endorphins in your brain release? To make you happy? It's also ironic that it takes more muscles to smile than frown, but it's worth the effort. <laughs> I already feel better. 
Do you know that a 30-minute walk will release the endorphins from the biggest muscles in your body, which are right here. These are the big ones right here, not these, here. And all the endorphins, they all live in here. Endorphins are the happy hormones, the happy hormones. They're all living in your thighs. But if you never work out your thighs, your thighs would just live happy to themselves. But I, I want my thighs... I want my thighs to pump some of those endorphins up into my torso, up through my neck and into my brain so that I can be a little bit happier in life. But you're gonna have to do something. You're gonna have to do something. Ah! What if I do it and somebody walks past me with COVID? Run! Run for your life! Run, Forrest, run! Go! You can do this! And you will feel better! Take this and put it down. I feel better. Everybody do it. Come on, pull them out. Pull them out, everybody. All locations, pull them out. Pull them out. I know you got them. Stop it. I know you got them. Look at all the young people like, yep. Ready to go? Ready? One, two, three. Feel better? All right. Now, if you're taking notes on your phone, bring them back out because second tool. All right. <laughs> second tool. Gentleness or meekness. Gentleness or meekness. I want you to write the definition down. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. Meekness is strength under control. Do you know who throws a fit? Do you know who throws a temper tantrum? Children. Babies. Babies demand their way. This is why God gives you babies. So that you can see the physical proof of the doctrine of original sin. They're not little angels, they're little devils. <laughs> so that you can also stop thinking about yourself. That's what children are for. They're there to teach you to stop thinking about yourself. They're also there to show you yourself from the outside. Mm. I say this all the time, but the one that you're hardest on is the one that's most like you. I know that was the case for me. You know, that's the, 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 so what you're seeing is, oh my, oh my Lord, is that what I am like? Oh my, what the? And, and meekness is knowing that you don't have to exert your strength to demand your own way all the time. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. When you've got a spirit of gentleness, you find rest. The people who are always demanding their own way, always fighting for their rights, always out there parading and protesting, are the people that have never learned to grow up and realize that this world does not revolve around them. And that some sometimes there's injustice, sometimes there's, there's wrong, sometimes you don't get what you want. But it doesn't make you a weak person. It doesn't make you a weak person. 
A strong person is someone who does not have to demand that everybody pay attention to them, that everybody do what they want. That was Jesus. He said, follow me. That's it, just follow me. And when they didn't follow, he wasn't all shook up about it. He wasn't worried. He trusted that the Lord was in control, that God was in control. Number three, patience. Again, if you want, if you want friends, these are your tools. But if you don't want friends, you can ignore everything I'm saying. Patience. Long-suffering or patience is the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. Do you have to get everybody back for everything? Really? Is that how you want to live? Eye for an eye. Wrong. That's Old Testament. Now it's turn the other cheek. Now let's go the extra mile. Now let's return cursing with blessing. Do not repay evil for evil, but rather bless. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Why? Because that's what God did for you. You were his enemy. Our sins nailed Jesus to that cross. And what he's asking his church to do is to pay it forward now. This world has enough people bickering and attacking and trying to get tit for tat, trying to level the score, level the playing. Stop it. Endure discomfort and don't have the feeling that you've got to get everybody back. I'll tell you, you drive yourself crazy. That's how you lose friends, by the way. The scripture actually says for the church, in Corinthians, when he says, stop taking each other to court, he says, why not just rather be wronged? Why not rather just be wronged for the sake of having friends? Oh, I don't want to be a pushover. Don't think of it that way. Think of it this way. You have grown. You're stronger now. You've got some meekness. Christ is with you. And if, if all else fails, remember that God is watching. You don't know how my boss treats me. I don't, but God does. You don't know how my spouse reacts to me. I don't, but God does. You don't know the unfairness that I've been through. Pastor, you don't know the people that have left me. I don't, but God does. And there is a secret to patience. The secret to patience is to know that there is a judgment coming. A perfect, righteous judgment from heaven. You are not the judge. Jesus is the judge. And he's coming with a sword in his mouth and a scepter in his hand. And he's riding a white horse. When he shows up, he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to make every wrong right. He's going to restore balance to the universe. He's going to bring peace to all the created order. And this is what he knew when he went to the cross, 1 Peter 2, 23. When he suffered, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you want peace in your life with the people that are at odds with you, you've got to remember that your father is watching and he's keeping detailed records and it is not for you to pay them back. God will take care of that. Point number two. Fighting for the family means remembering that friends are friends, but family is family. And when I say family, I am talking about the spiritual family of God. I am talking about the church family. Right now, we are in a gathering. Right now, we are in an auditorium. This is not really our family gathering. 
Our family gatherings happen in small group. And when we have small groups, like the one that showed up and prayed for Rick at the parking lot this week, that's where family starts to become forged. When we face each other, when we talk to each other. So Paul sums this up. He says this in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In other words, we're one. And then he says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I'm not a big fan of Bible numerology, but I will give you a touch of it today. Numerology is studying numbers in the Bible. So like the number one in the Bible, it stands for uh, integrity. The number two stands for division. So whenever God creates division, he uses the number two, light from dark, land from sea. It's all over the creation narrative, by the way, male and female, two. Um, the number three stands for God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The number four stands for creation, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of heaven. Uh, the number five stands for grace. The number six stands for man. The number seven stands for uh, completion. The number 10 stands for uh, God's uh, law. The number 12 stands for God's government. On and on and on we can go. In this text, I want you to see that there are seven ones and four alls. Look at it up there. What is it? One hope, one, I'm sorry, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Then four alls. One God and Father of all, over all, through all, in all. Four alls, seven ones. Meaning seven, the number of completion, is connected to four, the number of creation, through God the Father. How do we bring the beauty of heaven, the, be the reality of God's completion to earth by staying united through God the Father. When two people know they've got the same Father, they fight different. You, you, ever, you ever see strangers fight? It's kind of nasty. It's kind of gnarly, right? It's kind of scary to see strangers fight because, because they think they're strangers. Um, but when you see brothers fight, there's a nuance to that fight, isn't there? Because those brothers know we might be hating on each other for this moment, but if anybody fights you, I'm fighting them. This is the church. This is the church. We're, we're going to have our moments where we fight. We're going to have our moments where we, we fall out of favor with each other, where we have conversations that are uncomfortable. But if anybody comes at you from the outside, I got your back. Don't be messing with my family. Don't come against the family. <laughs> and we're all different, but we all relate to the same father. He, he relates to us differently. And so here's what I want you to write down. We tend to divide over the means of God's grace instead of unite over the goodness of God's grace. The means of God's grace is the way that God relates to you that's different than the way he relates to me. we got the same father, but because he's absolutely perfect in his understanding of how to relate to us, he will say things and do things to you that he won't say or do to me. Because he knows me and he knows you and he knows what you need, he knows what I need. In the Gospels, this is very clear because Jesus will heal the same disease with different tactics. If you read the scriptures, there's two blind guys in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. One guy, Jesus, stands before Jesus, he's blind. Jesus spits in the dirt, makes mud, puts the mud on the guy's eyes, wipes it away, heals him. There's another guy, actually several other blind guys, that Jesus just says, be healed, and they instantly see. 
Why, why the two different ways of healing? And I think if I had my choice, I think I'd pick the one, just say it, Jesus. Right? But why the two different ways to relate? Because he's going to relate to us in different ways. Let me tell you how this matters in the church. Because most of our denominations have been created because we think that God only relates to human beings one way. So the Catholics only this way, the Protestants only this way, and then the Baptists only this way, and the Pentecostals only this way. And listen, this is the fact of the matter. Here's the deal. Some of us are quieter. Some of us are very quiet in how we relate to God, and God has always been very quiet to us. We call those people Baptists. <laughs> or Presbyterians or Catholics. Some of us, like me, are very loud. The only way God gets my attention is loud. Moving his hands and talking a lot. We call these people Pentecostals, Charismatics. Everything's a demon to these people, everything. They name and claim everything. They're on the way to Dunkin' Donuts, I name and claim fresh coffee in Jesus' name. And what I thought of funny things, instead of just rejoicing in the, you know, the uniqueness of how we relate to God, we demonize and attack each other, and we expect the quiet people to be loud and the loud people to be quiet and all this stuff, and we try to force our way at others, and, and instead of saying, hey, we all love Jesus, that's what brings me together. And I'm so glad that you have taught me that God is not always loud. And a lot of people, I'm so glad that you taught me how to get a little bit loud. Because we need that plethora of diversity in the, gospel, in the Bible, in the body of Christ. Amen? What does he say in 1 Corinthians 12? The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Nothing's more different than an eye and a hand. He says, the foot, uh, uh, nor again to the, the head to the foot, I have no need of you. I mean, we're completely opposite ends of the body. The foot and the head. But they need each other. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weak are indispensable. The parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. I, I have a, a backache today, but it was reminding me of the time that I put my back out. And uh, I was in my apartment. I was single at the time, and I, I was so bad I could not stand up. I literally could not stand up for seven days. I called in the work the whole week. I couldn't believe it. And I got on a, um, an office chair with wheels, and I just wheeled myself around my apartment all week. It was so weird. And I finally got to the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, you pulled one tiny little muscle in your back. It's about this big, and you pulled it. And I thought to myself, I never even thought about that muscle until it was gone. But that muscle holds me up. There are people in the body of Christ that we don't even see, we don't even think about, but they hold us up. We like to say in this church, the sermon starts in the parking lot. Sermon starts when people see a smiling face directing them to their parking spot. The sermon continues when people see them at the doors greeting them. Sermon continues when they check your kids in with a smiling face. The, the sermon continues at the cafe. Sermon continues into your small groups when, when somebody who, let me be honest, really does not want to have people in their home that night still has people in their home that night because they know the sermon's happening there. Someone needs Jesus there. Someone needs to have a touch of the Holy Spirit today, and I will lay down what I feel is comfortable for the sake of their call. That's the body being the body. That's the church being the church. And then he says, and on the parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. 
and the unpresentable parts are greater with greater modesty. I'll just skip down. It says this, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the, say the last five words together, same concern for one another. The reason why God relates to certain people differently, the reason why God does something for someone that, doesn't, that he doesn't do for you is so that, so that because that person needs that and you don't need that. And instead of worrying about what God does for somebody else, why don't we just celebrate that God is at work in our family? Finally, number three, fighting for the family means using my gifts to serve the family. Using my gifts to serve the family, which is what Paul says in verse seven. Look what he says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So use your gift to post on Instagram you doing that gift. No. <laughs> Use your gift to serve the family. I got no problem with you posting on Instagram. I got a problem, though, when it's all about just being seen. And you're more, important, you're, you're more concerned with being seen than serving. We serve a Savior who on the night before he was crucified, listen to me, the night before he was crucified, he got on his knees with the bucket and the towel and the water and he washed their feet. And do you know that Judas was still in the room when he did it? Read it. In John 13, Judas was still there. What if I serve and they don't love me back? What if I serve and it does nothing good? What if I serve and they don't come to Christ? Serve anyway. Jesus washed Judas' feet. I'm so sick and tired of a church trying to be famous. Church trying to act like the church. We got Christian celebrities. A Christian celebrity? That's an oxymoron. <laughs> celebrity pastors. Celebrity pastors. What? Pastor's a shepherd. Ain't no one getting on America's Got Talent with their shepherding gift. <laughs> Watch me steer the sheep. Christians are so funny. We, we're, we're so insecure of who we are in God, we think the answer is to be like the world. No. The answer is to be like Christ. The answer is to be different than the world and serve others, not be served. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And if you can't serve, can you really say that you're following the great servant Jesus? So number one, I want you to write down this, two things. First, I have a gift. And second, I have a gift to serve. It's not about what you've gotten. It's not about what people are doing for you. It's not about how you've been blessed. It's about you being a blessing. It's about you helping someone else out. We, now, now, some of you say, I don't have a gift. Yes, you do. Romans 12, 6, having gifts. He, he, he assumes it's true. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, use them. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, passage, you are gifted. Use it to serve others as God's stewards of varied grace. So Paul says in verse 8, he ascended on high, he led host captives. He gave gifts to men. And what does he ascended mean? But he really descended to the lower regions of the earth. We'll talk about this next week a little bit. Verse 10, he says, He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. A lot of people have a problem with this text. They say, what does that mean that Jesus descended and then he ascended? 
Some people think that it means he just came to earth. Some people think it means he came as a servant, so he descended, he lowered himself. That's what, those things are true, but the other thing is this. When Jesus descended, he died. Remember, he died on the cross. Well, there was three days before he rose again. What did he do in between those three days? His spirit went down into the abyss. Went down into the lower parts of the earth, is what he says. And before Jesus died, the righteous saints of the Old Testament were kept in a place, some people call it Abraham's bosom, or some people call it paradise. It was a holding cell because there was no way to heaven without the blood of Jesus. Below them were the spirits of the wicked. And so what Jesus does with the gospel truth now completed at the cross, he goes down into the lower regions of the earth and he proclaims to all the wicked, it's over, I've won the victory. And he proclaims to all the people who were righteous in the old covenant, he says, follow me. And they all go straight to heaven. He led captivity captive. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, you can look this up. In Matthew 27, when Jesus rose, many righteous people rose out of their graves on that same day. He led the captivity captive. And it all happened because he came not to be served, but to serve. Here's the point. My gift to serve makes an eternal difference. See, some of you have got a too short-term view of how you serve here at Waters Church, and maybe that's why you don't serve. Maybe that's why you're not yet involved. I know you come and listen to me, and I'm thankful for that today, but do more than that. Sign up to serve. I love what Jody said about leaving a legacy. It's true. What are you leaving behind? That's not just about you having the American family, the American dream, and a 401k that you can live on. What are you doing for someone other than you? Think about Waters Kids. What an what a awesome truth that was last week. And I thought, you know that I'm on this stage because of a pastor's wife who you've never met that taught me Sunday school every single morning. Me, her son, and two others. We were the only four kids in that Sunday school. And every week she, we put that poor woman through hell. <laughs> and every week at the end of the lesson, she would say, okay, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And she would lead us in the prayer that I lead you in at the end of every service. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Welcome me into your family. I believe you are Lord of lords and King of kings. And I don't really have a day where I can say, that's the day that I got born again. You know what I had? I had a faithful servant of God leading me in that prayer every week. And one of those weeks, I don't know which one it was, it took And can I tell you that all of you sitting here listening to me preach the gospel today, do you know that her reward in heaven is great because all of you are beneficiaries of the work she did in that church basement when I was a kid. And I wonder, I wonder what other preachers, missionaries, CEOs that are gonna run their business with ethics and gospel-oriented ideas is in our children's ministry right now and there's people that are going to be blessed they're going to have a job that puts food on their table they're going to have a, a teacher that that doesn't I, teach them and indoctrinate them but but leads them faithfully into the abcs and one two threes and they got a they got a principal who's got a conscience they got they got a a, a co-worker who will pray for them when they see them down because you said yes to serving you got to have a lot longer view of what it means to serve. It's not doing us a favor. It's not just putting up with people. It's changing the world.
In a world of people so full of themselves, they can't see anybody else. This is our, this is our calling. I think about Shane, Pastor Shane Parsons, our executive pastor. You know, he wasn't always our executive pastor. He started by serving at a soup kitchen in our basement. Just giving poor people food. And then he became a deacon and an usher. I actually have a picture of him. I wish I had it ready for the screen. It's a picture of Shane, much younger Shane, with a little usher tag on. That's what he was doing. And after every Sunday, he used to call me, what can I do, what can I do? Every Sunday on Monday, we get a phone call. What can I do, what can I do? What can I, do? I got so sick of him asking me what he could do, I hired him. <laughs> the day that he showed up for work, the first day on the job, I took all the keys to the church, I took all the stuff, I handed it to him, I said, do something. <laughs> and I, this is a true story, I have not had a key to any of our buildings since. That is a true story. Don't ever call me to get you in this building. I purposely don't have a key for that very reason. I don't want to be called. I don't want to come. Call Shane. He's a servant. But the Lord raised him up. The Lord made him one of my absolute best friends. And I'll tell you something. There have been many days when I wanted to quit, and he was right there championing me, telling me not to believe the critics, not to believe the people who stabbed me in the back, not to give up, keep going, press on. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The best relationships you will ever have will be discovered in the family of God. But in order to get there, you gotta serve. And you gotta give up your rights. And you gotta believe that family is family.